0: And sisters, uh, we're in our final few days and hours of Ramadan and uh, it's nothing that we want to talk about. More oppression in the Muslim world like we've seen in this video this week, but it's important to talk about it. Ramadan is not just the month of fasting, the month of prayer, the month of Quran, but it was also the month of jihad. Uh, And uh, as such, you can never divorce these events, these political issues from the the spiritual aspect of Islam, and we mustn't. So it's important that we talk about this issue. And especially al-Masih al-Aqsa, is uh, linked to our aqeedah this quran that we've heard recited in this month includes the aya ba'd al'awzubillahi minash shaitanir rajeem bismillahir rahmanir rahim subhanalladhi asra bi 'abdihi laylan minal masjidil harami ila al masjidil aqsa alladhi barakna hawlahu linuriyahu min ayatina innahu huwas samiul basir allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that he is glorified subhanahu wa ta'ala he took Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wa from the one who took Rasulullah sallallahu from al-Masjid al-Haram to al-Masjid al-Aqsa uh, in the miraculous night journey al-Isra and from there he ascended to the heavens uh, in al-Miraj. So it's linked to our Aqidah. Uh, my screen I'm going to share with you just is my notes for this talk uh, and maybe seeing my notes and my thoughts uh, will help uh, focus you a little bit more than just seeing my face and hearing my voice. So uh, really what I would like to cover in um, my, uh, my talk today, my address to you today, is what has happened, why it is happening and what we should be doing. Well, the video you've just seen has addressed some of what has happened in the short term but it needs a little bit of unpacking uh, and I'm not going to go into great detail but uh, as the video explained this suburb of, uh, of Al-Quds of Jerusalem called Sheikh Jarrah uh, has uh, some houses owned by some Palestinian families who have lived there for decades uh, and uh, they have uh, rights to live there, which was given under the Jordanian Ruling Authority, uh, which had a ruling over Jerusalem, presumably uh, given by the United Nations after the occupation started. Uh, actually, the occupation, we must remember, of Jerusalem started in 1917 at the end of World War One, And then there was a British mandate over that land. And then after World War II and the establishment of the United States, The land was usurped by the Zionists, uh, and and at that stage, Jerusalem was nominally part of the areas which Jordan was supposed to be in charge of. So the families have had these rights. The so-called settlers, or really occupiers, have uh, been claiming those those houses and that land uh, based on some... Spurious evidence they have, funnily enough, dating back to records from the Uthmani Khilafah, um, which is a joke if they use that as a basis for their criteria, because on that basis, the whole of the land would, uh, none of the land would be uh, given to them. Um, But the ruling on this land is due just this week. So things have been escalating over the last week. But it isn't just that that's been escalating. Those people who've been following events in Al Quds over the last month have seen that uh, Palestinians who enter the old city often enter from a side where is the Damascus Gate, which is the, that's the side where the neighborhoods where a lot of the Palestinian families live, they enter from the Damascus Gate. And the security forces have been closing off the Damascus Gate uh, and access to them. And in the middle of all of this, settlers came and did massive protests calling for deaths to Arabs and and these kind of things, which which heighten the tensions in this last uh, week the day, the day in this last month, the day they did the protests, they were even smashing people's houses and abusing people when they did that with the impuri- impunity because they're backed by the security forces so all of that led up to the events in the video and ultimately the storming of Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. And the events really are not going to die down very quickly because uh, the, the ruling comes this week. And indeed, the, uh, the politicians there of the occupying authority are basically saying they want to postpone the verdict. So, but this, when I say what is happening, this is just the snapshot of what we've seen in the last few weeks. The question of why it's happening needs to be looked in two ways. One is the local events that are happening on the ground, and the other is the geopolitics that affects the whole region. When you look at the local events, and I, I say this as somebody, I have to plead a bit of ignorance here. I, I, alhamdulillah, I was blessed enough to visit Al-Quds and Al-Mashar Aqsa about two and a half years ago. And the impact of some of the things we hear about on social media or on the, the television media or print media doesn't become clear until you go there and you speak to people who are living there. We know the whole land was occupied, as I say, first of all in 1917 and then in the late 1940s by the Yehud. And we know that the whole land should be under Islam. From the United Nations perspective, part of the land should be with the Yehud, part of the land should be with the Palestinians. And even that is disputed because in 1967, in one of the fake wars that happened, uh, land in the Palestinian area was occupied. And according to the United Nations law, that's illegal occupation. Yet still, Jewish occupants, occupiers, go and live in those areas, which are uh, nominally meant to be the Palestinian areas, and those people are called settlers. And you kind of have this picture from the term settler and the communities they live in, that they're just kind of living in small little communities or enclaves. When you look in reality at what those settlements are, they are like almost cities within cities that they're, they're huge conglomerations of buildings that stretch for miles through somebody else's land so it's not just that the the land was occupied and colonized and stolen and the palestinians were expelled in al nakba it's not just that it's that the areas that even now that the people who are responsible for that colonization and expulsion say should be under under the palestinians these huge Colonies are built, stretching for miles. As I say, like a snake, snaking through the landscape. Uh, you can be driving for 15-20 minutes, and you will see. You will be driving past this built-up area, which is all like just one settlement. And and then the scale of you, it like hits you in a breathtaking way of what what's being stolen. And that's somebody else's land that that's been built on. These lands, the title deeds of those lands, are owned by families or for hundreds of years sometimes. And how that starts is very interesting. When you speak to the people there, sometimes you'll go in a neighborhood, a a Palestinian neighborhood, and there'll be one one building with the, the occupying Zionist flag on it. And that one building is the start of the colonization of that area. And that one building came, either it was stolen by brute force, so some of these things start with just some thugs going on along and finding a build, building which they say is empty or not being lived in, or which they say is uh, uh, being, uh, or, or, or they say lay a claim on, and they, they physically like force people out. Or it's bought, and sometimes there have been some people who have been duped into selling their houses for fantastic prices, like unbelievable prices, Much more than the property would be worth if it was being sold between, say, a Palestinian family. But somebody externally, so either from the USA or sometimes I've been told from the UAE, will act as an intermediary and buy a property and then sell it onto the Zionist occupiers. Or through kind of pseudo litigation. So people are told they didn't have building rights or they didn't have ownership rights or they haven't maintained their properties to an adequate standard. And so through the Occupying court process, the the court process of the occupiers. It's basically uh, taken uh, that the property is taken over. So literally, you get this house by house stealing of an area, and that one house starts, and then other houses join it. And as soon as you get some settlers in that predominantly Muslim neighbourhood, or predominantly sometimes Palestinian neighbourhood, because it could even be a Christian neighbourhood, then the occupying security forces come and start. Defending those settlers and preventing the local people from living their lives as normal. And, and ultimately, that can even lead to stealing of the holy places. So, the, the most striking place where you see this happening actually is the, the city of Hebron, Al Khalil, where Ibrahim a.s. and some of the other Anbiya a.s. are buried, and there's a Masjid al Ibrahimi. And the whole of that, uh, that place, there's a massive settlement built in there such that Palestinian people cannot drive through it. The security guards are there checking, checking them from going in one side of the city. And if they enter the other side, they can get close to the city center, but there's a barricade which stops them going through a security barricade. People can go through one by one being checked by armed security forces. And the masjid, which started off as a masjid under the control of the masjid authorities. And if uh, Jewish pilgrims wanted to go there, they could visit has now become controlled overall by the Zionist occupiers. And even there'll be days when they take over the whole masjid, but in general it's divided in two with one side for the Muslims and the other side for, for the Jews. Uh, but literally the control has been taken over. And that model for Hebron can be seen happening in other cities in Jaffa, in, in, in other places that have been occupied. And ultimately that model is being adopted in al Quds itself. And what people have seen over the last few years has been in Amr al-Aqsa itself, certain areas first of all cordoned off where the Palestinians, the Muslims couldn't worship in them. And they're being nominally uh, taken as heritage areas or for archeological exploration and this sort of thing. But the fear is that they will end up becoming places where which can be taken over by others to come in, and more and more hostile settlers and visitors have come, uh, 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 causing trouble there when they've been coming to to visit because the site of the Dome of the Rock is is meant to be sacred to them as well, uh, and, and this is like the, it's like a creeping colonisation, house by house, community by community, and ultimately with a view that they don't hide their vision, uh, uh, some of these politicians now, they don't hide their vision, with a view to basically occupying the entire country, the entire land. So that's the local picture. But it's very important we don't get lost in the micro detail. The events in Sheikh Jarrah, the events in Masjid Aqsa, are heartbreaking actually, and they fill you with anger. And the description I've given uh, of what's happening in terms of the colonization fills you with even more anger. But none of it could happen, none of it could happen without understanding the geopolitics of the region. Uh, Because this small area of occupied land in this Zionist entity, this Zionist occupation, actually is supported by two things. One is the global superpower, the United States, and the other is the regional powers, the rulers in the regimes in the Muslim countries immediately surrounding that area. The rulers in the Muslim country immediately surrounding that area are the first line of defense. If they were not there, the whole uh, entity occupying entity would vanish. It would be extinguished. It is in origin. It is weak. It is weak in terms of numbers. It is weak in terms of moral fibre. I can tell you that, having seen these people face up, they're cowards. And it can. It is weak in terms of in terms of strength of arms. If you pull together the military capability of the neighbouring Muslim countries, they dominate over even the strength of this, with all the support it gets from the United States, Britain, Europe. Uh, They dominate over it. So if it it was not for these uh, regimes in the Muslim countries that support this occupation, it would vanish. It's often said if every Muslim from these surrounding countries went and just spat on there they would drown. It's, it's literally, it is like that. So you cannot divorce what is happening from the geopolitics. In fact, it is ironic that the, uh, not ironic, it is shameful that this escalation has got worse at a time where we have seen what has been called normalization of relations between different countries. So previously, Turkey, Egypt, and Jordan all recognized and had diplomatic, trade, and even military relations with the Zionist entity. In the last few months, we have seen them joined by the UAE, by Oman, by Bahrain, by Sudan, and by Morocco. And all of that is by design. Now, these countries actually had pre-existing relationships behind the scenes, covert relationships, but not overt relationships. And they've now got overt relationships, and this was brokered by the Trump administration, in what Trump called his deal of the century, and the argument was fundamentally this: uh, the Zionist entity should have warm relations with all these countries individually. The countries would benefit primarily through trade and economy, but also there was some uh, some sort of security element to it. So. Some of these countries have been on US watch lists as dodgy countries, and they would be moved off of these statuses. So this particularly applied to places like Sudan. Uh, But they were tempted, basically bribed with the the offer of better trade. And in addition to that, some of them, there was an element of a carrot, uh, of a stick there, as well as the carrot. that if you don't cooperate, you will end up being fine with more sanctions on you, Uh, like I say, particularly in the case of Sudan, that was relevant. So uh, that was part of Trump's deal of the century. The other part of it was putting a deal on the ground for the Palestinians, which was even more humiliating than the deal that they've had through the Oslo process, uh, which was pretty humiliating, where they've lost most of the land, which was even supposedly given to them by the UN, when in reality, the whole of the land should be in the hands of uh, the Muslims of Palestine. So uh, how uh, people were expected to swallow this, where even more of the land was taken away from, even the settlements that have been built would be uh, legitimized as rather than in international law, law, rather than being illegitimate occupation, they would be part of the Zionist entity recognized in international law. Um, uh, and. And, and the Palestinians should basically take it or leave it. And the idea was that uh, this was supposed to broker a deal which would move towards the two-state solution, which the United States wants to see. The, this is the geopolitics of the region, and this is important to understand for us, brothers and sisters, not just because of what's happening in Palestine, that none of these events could happen without the impunity that these people have, both from the United States, but also from the regimes of the Muslim world in the neighboring area. None of these things could really happen. And none of these things could have escalated like this without that kind of impunity. And it's important for us to look at this in the context of other places in the world, because those who are watching the politics of Kashmir at the moment in Pakistan can see that the government of pakistan the regime in pakistan and the indian government are having bilateral talks uh, general bajwa gave a speech in march where he said that you know uh, 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 improving relations with india will mean a great boost economically for the whole region uh, and that uh, in in the and the biggest obstacle to that was the issue of kashmir so you can see it's almost like the same bribery and temptation is being put before the people of Pakistan to normalize relations with India uh, and settle the Kashmir issue in a way that does away with it from the point of view of the Pakistani government's point of view. And Allah knows what the people of Kashmir would face if, uh, if they didn't even have a single voice speaking for them from the point of view of a, of a state in the world. So that gives the local picture and the geopolitical picture, which is important. And and I want you to bear that big global picture in mind because when we come to this next thing of what we should do, uh, you can't divorce that. You can't just look at the local issues or you can't look at solutions without understanding that bigger picture. What do others say? Well, some people say we should pray and make dua. Well, alhamdulillah I agree with them I, I don't Anyone that says that a Muslim should not make du'a for his brothers Should not invoke Allah for a solution Is is deluded about their Islam The power of du'a is immense And du'a made with a sincere heart Brings you and me reward And inshallah can, uh, We hope to move That our du'a is responded to by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala To change the reality But I will come back to du'a A minute because dua is not something that is unlinked to action. Some people say we should raise awareness. I I agree. Uh, We were speaking to some family in Pakistan in the last day or two. They didn't really have a clue about what was happening in Al Quds, uh, which makes me feel that maybe the mainstream channels out there or mainstream media out there are not projecting it as it's happening in the way that we are seeing it on social media. We know that here, living in the West, that we don't expect the BBC or The Guardian or any of these people to give a fair coverage of what's happening, both in terms of the size of coverage, nor in terms of the justice in the way they present it. They present these things as clashes between Israeli security forces and Palestinians implying that there are some Palestinians who are rioting and they need to be kind of brought under control without presenting the real substance of what's happening. But raising awareness of what's happening is important. And, and yes, that is something we can do. Rasulullah sallallahu uh, uh, described this ummah uh, as a, a one body. And if one part is aching, the other part should feel it. And a manifestation of that is for us to raise concern about it. Some people immediately default to the issue of charity. And uh, this is a difficult one to talk about. Who can deny that charity is not a good thing in Islam? Who can deny that there is not economic hardship for the Muslims of Palestine? There is economic hardship, particularly in places like Gaza, which, Face a massive boycott. So th- without doubt, anyone who gives charity for people in economic hardship, for example, in Palestine, is, it, it is this is a, a valid thing. Yet it is not the solution to the problem that we are talking about today. The charity is not going to help the people, the, the mosque not being stormed. It's not going to help the stop the evictions. It's not going to help the stop the colonization of the land and hence i say it's a difficult one to talk about because we as muslims should not let ourselves get channeled into a way of thinking which actually takes us away from thinking about the real problem and the real solution into doing things that we think make us feel better but actually uh, nothing more than a sticking plaster over the solution over the over the wound over the bleeding, hemorrhaging wound, Uh, they are not a solution. And we should not let people tell us they are a solution. And sometimes I feel angry that when events like this happen, the biggest focus becomes on the big corporate charities that are then asking for your handout at that time, rather than for you to think about what is the real problem and what is the solution. I've had messages coming to me this week, petitioning uh, people to write to the UK government to address it, write to the UN. Here is where understanding the geopolitics is important. I don't say that these people are not insincere in asking for somebody to do something. But why would you go to the somebody who created the problem in the first place? This land was occupied by Britain in 1917 after the Balfour Declaration, which basically said it would give the land over to the Zionists. It would steal the land, usurp the land, and give it to the Zionists. The Zionists usurped it fully in the late 1940s, and that was endorsed by the UN ever since. So, And the UN, even though people go to it and they say there's been crimes and they say there's been occupation, illegal occupation, and they say that you know, the settlements are illegal and these kind of things, in, in reality... They have presided over more than 70 years of injustice in that region. So how people can think they would even go to these agencies and these countries and these governments and expect some solution is just absurd. When we talk about what we should do, we need to think about what will change this reality, what will change the occupation? What will change the colonization? What will change the oppression? That is the substance of what we're talking about today. The problem was caused by a geopolitical earthquake in that region. After the British occupied in World War I in 1917, and the war ended in 1918, the region was carved up under what's called the Sykes-Picot Accord into small states, weak states, colonized states, Who were subservient to either Britain or France, or in more recent years, to the United States. And the rulers in those states were client rulers, never given any authority except to save their own skins, enrich themselves and their elites, and pay pay their service to their masters in the West. So that was the shake-up that allowed this occupation of Palestine to start in the first place. And This occupation is sustained by a state level military force. So the money that's sent from Washington and Europe to buy arms for these people, for these occupiers is a state level armed force. The only solution is liberation. And the only way it can be liberated is with a state level military response, ample resources of the type that Egypt or Turkey or Jordan Or Syria, or Iran, or any of these countries, or a combination of them, could actually have to liberate this land. Instead, we see these countries doing nothing. Rather, they would, uh, at best, pay lip service to condemning the Zionist occupiers, but actually, have they done anything to liberate the land? Resistance is not liberation. If somebody says some of the resistance groups in Palestine, have received backing from these states, that is not the same as liberation. Resistance means just that the people who are imprisoned in Palestine, the Muslims imprisoned in Palestine, are taking a stand in resisting the occupation. Those people who are taking that stand do not think that their stand will liberate the land. Rather, they are waiting for the modern-day Salahuddin to come and rescue them. They are waiting for that. That is how they see the solution. When you talk to them there, that is how they see the solution. Everything they're doing in the meantime is just in the meantime, but they see the solution that somebody needs to come from outside to rescue them. Now, those armies exist. That military capability exists. Those people who have the capability to change the Munkar with their hands are there and they are accountable by Allah. Uh, They're accountable to Allah and they will be accounted by Allah. But for those armies to go, it needs a political will. Armies just don't go by themselves. They're sent by governments. And therefore, in order for that to change, you need a political change in the region. To realize that political will to send the armies and to reverse the change that happened in 1917, 1918 both in terms of occupation, but also in terms of the division of the land, the ruling by kufr, ruling by secularism, and uh, ruling by monarchies or military dictators, and r- having artificial divisions in the land, rather you need a change. And really this is why when we talk about khilafa, we talk about the unity of the Muslims under one Amir, ruling by Islam, who will mobilize the resources of the Muslims, in order to realize the liberation, that could be military, that could be diplomatic, that could be political, that could be economic, it could be in every single way, it could be use of its media, but it all needs to be focused and delivered towards changing that occupation, removing the, uh, the, the, the colonization of the region, removing the occupation of the region, removing the dhulm, and replacing it with the justice of Islam, because Islam, is the only dean that has successfully ruled in that part of the world where Jews, Muslims, Christians, and others have lived side by side for decades or centuries at times without any conflict between them, for centuries without any conflict between them. And yet when you see that Islam removed from the region, you see Muslim fighting Muslim, and you see the colonizers coming and fighting everyone. And this, brothers and sisters, fits with uh, the solution that Allah himself tells us in the Qur'an. And it, it, this mobilization of the military to send a real jihad, not just a few guys with backpacks and trying to do their own thing, which will not actually liberate the land. A real jihad, a real armed force is there to liberate the land. Allah says, "Wa lakum? What is the matter with you? وَمَا لا تقاتلون في سبيل الله من الرجال والولدان, that you don't fight in the way of Allah for the musta'afin the oppressed amongst the men the women and the children الذين يقولون ربنا أخرجنا من هذه القرية أحلها. the ones who say the oppressed men women and children who say our Lord Rabbana, take us out of this oppressive city, this city of oppressive people, take us out of this land of oppression. And appoint from yourself, Ya Allah, a wali, a protector, a nasir, a helper. And, and and this ayah was actually the context of this ayah being revealed. the uh, the, the Qaria al zalim the one that the the, the city where, the, where which of uh, uh, of oppressive people was mecca it was not al quds it was mecca it was mecca before its liberation it was mecca that the people the muslims left in mecca after the hijrah, including uh, ibn abbas عنه, and his mother uh, may Allah be pleased with them both, who were left behind. Ibn Abbas said about this ayah, this included myself and my mother, we were amongst the Mustadhafeen in Mecca, facing the dhulam of the Mushrikeen in Mecca. And who was the wali and nasir that Allah saw, sent? It was the Rasulullah when he came uh, with the fatul Mecca in Ramadan to relieve them of their oppression. And so, you know... Uh, SubhanAllah, after this event, reading the tafsir of this ayah, I I used to give the example of Salahuddin that people are waiting because he did the same centuries later when he mobilized. What did Salahuddin? He mobilized the Muslims to unify, to unify, to end their differences and to focus on liberating al-Quds rather than fighting amongst each other. So he did exactly what is necessary then, as what is necessary now. Rasulullah in Medina, he had the Islamic authority, the Islamic state in Al-Madina, Al-Munawwara, he, he, and he mobilized his troops to make the liberation of Mecca, in Fatul makkah in Ramadan. And Salahuddin, he unified the people under a political authority and he sent the armies to liberate. So it should not surprise us that when we say the solution to this problem today is the same thing, there needs to be a political change where the, land, the, 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 the divided states are unified. They are united under one ruler, under Islam, who mobilizes all resource to liberate that land in order to uh, uh, prevent that. So when we say, what should we be doing? There's the easy part. Okay? And this is where I leave it with you. And I, I don't mean to make you feel comfortable, because if our brothers and sisters in Palestine are not feeling comfortable, why should I? sitting in the comfort of a London suburb, feel comfortable in Ramadan. Yeah, raising awareness is easy. Making du'a is easy. Telling your local Imam to address it in his khutbah or on Laylatul Qadr or uh, on a it's easy. All of these things are easy for us to do. The hard is the action which is linked to the du'a. So if I make du'a to Allah and say, Ya Allah, liberate Palestine, liberate Palestine, Unify the Muslim lands Unify under a sincere leader like Salahuddin Send the armies to liberate Palestine And end the zulm there And re-establish the justice of Islam over the region So that the people that live there Who have a right to live there Whether they be Muslims, Jew or Christian That have a right to live there Can live in peace under the justice of Islam Then I have to do the action That can be linked to that So here, then people start thinking, well, what do I do? That's the challenge. What I say to you, brothers and sisters, is one step in the right direction to a solution, towards a real solution, is better than a thousand steps to any false solution. So, So think with your head a bit more than your heart in terms of, like, when people start talking about things which are easy for you to do, like, you know, sending a petition to Downing Street or going to protest after Downing Street or giving more charity. I don't say these things are not meant with sincerity, but none of these things is going to change the reality there. Not one, not one. In fact, if you believe in miracles that maybe it could change the reality, then you might just as well sit at home and do dua because that is the real investment in looking for a miracle. You might not as well bother doing the other actions associated with it because actually they are. That you you know you might as well do the gardening then and expect that's going to bring the solution because these are not actually anything in the right direction. One step in the right direction towards a real solution is better than a thousand in the wrong way. so there are some things we can do. one thing that Muslims should be very careful about is reject all legitimacy of the Zionist entity now you know earlier on in this talk I gave, I used the I word, okay? My tongue slipped and I used the I word. The I word meaning the name that they give this entity. The I word gives it the legitimacy as a country. So I make a point of really trying not to say that word. Why? Because it isn't, it's an occupation. It's not a country. As one person said to me today in a message, it doesn't have a history. It has a criminal record. It is an occupying power, a nationalistic occupying power, no less. It's not a religious state. It's a nationalistic state. It's very much built on tribal basis. And and so in your and my terminology, we should never allow, Muslims should never recognize it. All right. And when we see rulers in Muslim countries legitimizing it, or the imam from your local masjid Going on an all expenses paid trip, paid for by the occupying authority to show them what a nice place it is, because a few imams from the UK have gone like that. Or the Muslim politicians that take the same all expenses paid trips. Sadat Khan, who's just been re elected as the mayor of London, has said that, you know, he said before the election that he would plan to go there and visit as a guest. All of these people are effectively, you know what they're doing? They're legitimizing what happens in the last week all that brutality, all that abuse, all that uh, assault, all that storming of the sacred uh, Masjid al-Aqsa at the time of uh, Taraweeh in the month of Ramadan, in one of the last 10 nights, all of those people are complicit. And most of all, the regimes in the Muslim world, they are the ones that are most complicit. So this comes to number two. We need to build an opinion that they are the problem. Because we may be living here in the UK, but actually we know people in other parts of the world. And opinions can be made nowadays via social media, they can be made through discussions with family. We need to build that opinion so people are clear in their head, you as the regimes are actually the problem, not even part of the problem. You are the problem. Even the USA with all its powers, the global superpower, could not sustain this occupation without. The surrounding countries so actually you are the problem and when we say in this uh, pamphlet this uh, infographic that we circulated saying account the asian rulers and call the embassies there are genuinely there are some countries like the uae and egypt which are so authoritarian it doesn't matter who you call at the embassy you aren't going to those people even if they agree with you are not going to say what they think but countries like turkey or in another context countries like pakistan Indonesia. These countries are countries where public opinion matters. So, you know, if people call the Turkish embassy for argument's sake, the people on the other side of the phone will be fuming. Will be if they if they if they have a heart, if they have an objective view of this, they will be feeling it and they will be discussing. Those are places which can generate discussion. So, you can help create this opinion that these regimes are the problem. They're not part of the problem. They are the problem. And actually you need to build this opinion that the Muslim armies are the ones who need to mobilize. Because two reasons. One, ultimately they are the ones who are going to be sent to go. So they have to be like, even now, they should know what is their responsibility. But, but two, the regimes in the Muslim world themselves can't sustain themselves. They are only sustained by the military in most cases. Literally there is, if they don't have the military on their side, they will not be sustained. The biggest example of this probably you you saw was in Egypt during the Arab Spring, where Mubarak was removed and Sisi took over the head of the army. The Muslim Brotherhood uh, came in as the ruling party with the support of the military. But when the military withdrew its support from them, their ruling collapsed and they were oppressed by the uh, Sisi's regime. Okay. The the military, the, our dawah doesn't just stop with our social medias, our friends, our family and these people. Our dawah, we want it to reach the ears and the hearts and the minds of every single one of the sons and daughters of this ummah. And that includes people in the armed forces. So we hope and we pray that as we do this action and we call for people to... Uh, realize the legitimate the responsibility falls with the army to liberate this land that allah takes our call and if you make dua for that that's the right action you're doing so when you're hoping for that miracle that, that your words and your deeds are carried to the right place and the right ear to move those hearts and change those actions to change the situation you're doing that one step in the right line so you need to do that and and part of this needs to be that you work for the global struggle for Khilafah. You work for that, you support that. Why? Because when the, this solution I'm giving you is not just based on any old thing. I, I, if you'd asked me this issue 30 years ago, I wouldn't have had a clue what to say from Islam, what Islam says. But by working with Hizmu Tahrir, by understanding the way that Muslims should think politically as politicians, as Muslims, as dawah carriers, you begin to understand what is the responsibility from Islam in any given situation, whether it's the situation of liberating an occupied land or after the land is liberated, how Islam would rule over a, an area as complex uh, as, as Palestine and Bilal al Sham with, with all its complexity and diversity of makeup of people. How does Islam do that? How did Islam manage to do that well, under the, the time of the Khilafah Rashida or the, the subsequent Khilafah for centuries. How did Islam do it? it? didn't happen just because they were nice people. It happened because the rules and laws of Islam determined a way that the Islamic ruling authority would rule over its citizens with justice, protect their right to worship, protect their life, protect their property, protect their honor, protect their minds. This was the aim of the Sharia, not just for the Muslim, but even for the non-Muslims. And the rights upon The citizen, the non-Muslim citizen, is the same as the rights on the Muslim in terms of the food, clothing, shelter, education, health, protection, and these other uh, maqasid al-sharia. So unless you understand this, you need to be part of this work for Khilafah, you will not commit yourself to understanding how the Muslims should be politically. Because when Khilafah is established, it needs the ummah to have some people to understand how ruling would be according to Islam. Sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Zakalah Alhamdulillahi rambil alameen. for a very informative, detailed, comprehensive discussion and presentation that you've given. Thank you for listening to this podcast.